0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 105 of Inside Quizzing, a
1: podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love
0: the Bible. And in this episode 105, Scott and I are going to be basically doing kind of two things. We're going to do a deep dive on all things scoring, in in particular, how to become a scorekeeper uh, and the various different things that you have to do. If you happen to have a score sheet handy, that would be a, a, a very good thing, unless you're driving. Otherwise, don't get a score sheet handy. Uh, if you do not have a score sheet handy, you can go to pnwquizzing.com. And you can look for a score sheet to download. Uh, you want to get the epistle version, although I suppose for our purposes here today it really doesn't matter all that much. Um, but uh, then you can follow along as we do a deep dive on all things scoring and scorekeeping related. If we have time, we are going to branch into some deep thoughts about quizzing. Uh, some effects of where we are with quizzing in terms of the technology and how some of that is influencing what we do uh, in in quizzing and and how people are operating in quizzing and in terms of like you know things that we might be aware of and things you know influences that we may not be aware of and so important to kind of dig into that as well. But before we go into those two various different deep dives, uh, I want to do a couple of review things first. The first is of those first things is that the scramble meet was this last Saturday, uh the uh twenty fifth of September. It was at Alliance Bible Church or ABC. It was fantastic. It was uh outside and we had three different spaces. I mean we called them rooms, but it was kind of weird talking about a room where, you know, the room only really had one wall and like no ceiling. So it was uh, it was definitely a unique experience, but it was actually a really awesome experience. Apart from room, I think it was room three or space three getting a little bit warm because the sun was directly on the quizzers for a while. Uh, It was a it was a really phenomenal experience. It was great to, you know, be back in person again with everybody. It's been uh, what like a year and a half since we've done an in-person meet so it was it was just phenomenal to be able to experience that energy again uh, it was very relaxed and fun and comfortable uh, and it seems like everybody had a good time so great fun stuff that happened there our next official meet is coming up in November it's going to be the weekend of the 13th uh, exactly the days right now whether it's you know the the 12th or the 13th or the 14th or I forget exactly where, basically, whether it's like a Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, exactly how that works, uh, those details are still in flux. So stay tuned or check out the pnwquizzing.org website for updates. I, I will try to keep that website up to date, uh, no la- no later than about maybe a 48-hour 48, 48 lag at most uh, for uh, based on when decisions are made, but I will try to update it even sooner than that uh, whenever you know, things are being made official and so forth. There is going to be an unofficial meet on October 9th and 10th at EBC. If you are, if you'd like to participate in that, and if these are, this the unofficial meet I should mention is, um, you know, it's it's not officially part of PNW quizzing, uh, you know, stats and, and uh, you know, scoring and all that will be, I'm sure will be Happening at the EBC meet, but it will not count for you know anything in terms of like your individual average or your team uh, position through the course of the of the season. But if you're interested in that meet, you want to contact either Kristen or Jeremy for additional information about that. And I would start with Kristen. All right. So with that all said, let's jump into our deep dive on all things
1: scoring. So Scott, uh, take it away. So when it comes to scoring, there are very few absolutes, but I will try to make this as simple as possible, even though whenever I say something is an absolute, there is always usually something that makes it not a complete absolute. And I I thought a little bit about how best to jump into all things scoring, and I decided to start with individual first and then go to team, rather than going into a quiz and starting at question one and talking about how scoring works. So for an individual... All that really matters is number of normal questions, so not bonuses, but number of normal questions correct and number incorrect. Nothing else is really in play. It's just number correct and number incorrect. It doesn't matter when you got them incorrect um, or when you got them correct. That is what determines your score in a given quiz. So correct questions are 20 points, incorrect questions... um, are negative 10 for the individual on their second and third errors. And and if an individual gets four correct and no incorrect in one quiz, they get a 10-point bonus for quizzing out without error. So four correct questions, 20 points each, with no errors, they get that 10-point bonus, is a total of 90. The only other wrinkle that I can think of is that if a quizzer gets anything correct or incorrect in overtime, it does not count at all. For their personal individual average. So again, that's what I'm talking about here is just a pers- a, an individual's score. All that matters is correct and incorrect, not including bonuses and not including overtime. Have I hit it all, Griffin? I think so. Okay. So that's as simple as it gets, and we will get more complex from here. So for the team, the team starts every quiz with zero which is probably not what everyone would think. They would think everyone starts with, every team starts with 20, but a team actually starts with zero. And if all members of the team are on time by the scheduled time of the quiz, they get a 20 point bonus. And different districts may have different specific rules surrounding that. But in general, a team starts with zero. And if everyone on the team is on time for the scheduled start of the quiz, they get 20 a 20 point bonus to start. And then from there, um, things are fairly similar to individual. A correct question is 20 points. For the team, negative points on incorrect answers start with the third one for the team. So if quizzers A, B, and C all get one error, that third that error by quizzer C is now the third total one for the team in this quiz, and they get negative 10 points for that error and for any errors that happen after that. But a key here is to separate individual from team. So for quizzer C, if even if their error was the third team error, if it's their first, they are not losing points for themselves as an individual. So individual scores and team scores are really calculated very differently. They're treated almost separately um now for the team if an individual if the same individual makes two errors that second error by them is negative 10 for the individual and it's also negative 10 for the team so i guess is a principle that negative points for an individual always applies to the team but negative points for the team um might not apply to the individual sorry say that again negative points for the individual always apply to the team. But negative points for the team might not always apply to the individual. I think that is true. I, yeah, I think that is true. So that's so that's a little bit of a wrinkle, right? It's the third total team error, but second individual error is also in play that can apply to the team. Another principle to talk about here, it might be a little bit earlier, early to talk about this, but negative points cannot accumulate. Meaning if there are multiple reasons to award negative points they can't you have to like pick one of them almost so let's say in my scenario quizzers a b and c make an error but quizzer a has already made one so that is the fourth team error when quizzer c makes one sorry let me reverse quizzer's a b and c make an error that third error is negative 10 for the team quizzer c makes another error which is negative now negative 10 points for that individual It is also negative 10 for the team, but that doesn't mean that it's now negative 20 for the team. So the most a team can lose on a single question is from an error is 10 points. And when I say on a single question, I mean like question 17. Question 17A is now a different question. I think we're on track. So now um, let's talk about bonus questions. So bonuses are when... Team A airs, and then Team B airs. Team C now has a bonus question. Anything that happens on a bonus question uh, does not have any impact on the individual and only has impact on the team. So that kind of goes back to my when I said all all that matters for an individual's score is number of normal correct and normal incorrect. So bonuses are not included in that. The way bonus questions work, if it is in questions 1 through 16, any bonuses that are correct are 20 points. If it's from question 17 on, they are only 10 points. And erring on a bonus question is never any negative points in any scenario. It's not negative. There, you, a team cannot get negative points for an error on a bonus question. Now, there are a different kind of bonus, which don't really have a special name, but I think sometimes people might refer to them as quizzer bonuses, or more specifically, third, fourth, and fifth quizzer bonuses. And this is if on a single team they have a they have 3 quizzers that all get at least one correct question when that third quizzer gets that correct question they don't just get the points from the correct question the team also gets an additional 10 and this is also under the category or umbrella of bonuses so even though it was that third individual that their correct question that got the team 10 points bonus the individual themselves does not get that bonus and it kind of makes sense right um there wasn't anything that that individual specifically did to be the third person on the team getting a correct question. They could have easily been the first, and it's not like the first person and the third person are any more or less impressive compared to each other, right, for getting one correct question. Um, but we want to reward teams that are that are deep and have depth. So the third quiz around team to get a correct question is 10 points, the fourth one is 10 points, and the fifth one is an additional 10 points. Um, So each of those correct questions would be worth 30 points. Now, those quizzer bonuses don't apply to bonus questions. So those bonus questions, um, which happens after two different teams air in a row, those are kind of really different, right? Because sometimes they're worth 20 points, sometimes they're worth 10 points, they're never worth negative points. They have nothing to do with individual scores, and they also have nothing to do with these third, fourth, and fifth quizzer bonuses. So those... Bonus and bonus errors are kind of just off by themselves, um, and I think that also makes sense, right? Those bonus questions are are a reward to the team for not airing, but they're not there's no competition on them, right so that's kind of your your reward is that there isn't competition on them, but you're also not eligible for this normal potential reward of third, fourth, and fifth quizzer bonuses so that is I think all of the scenarios. For scoring for individuals and teams in the first twenty questions, do you think I've missed anything due to like th- correct or incorrect?
0: Th- I don't think so. I mean, a lot of it is. I mean, these these are the sort of the basic um, logical steps to running those calculations. There are very interesting strategies and sort of situations that evolve out of those simple rules. So it's very much like like chess in a way, or allegorical to chess, where you know chess is actually at the core of chess is a, a set of very simple rules that end up because of their, you know, working together, end up, uh, you know, in very complex uh, situations. So similarly, I think you can end up with very complicated scenarios in scorekeeping, but it all sort of comes from these very uh, this set of very simple uh, rules.
1: Right. So one quick example on that is because it is the third total team error where a team gets negative 10 points. You could see in a meet like internationals, a team is um, on question 15 or something pretty deep into the quiz, and they only have one error. And so they know that if they make one more error, they won't lose anything, provided it's not the same person who made that first error, right? Um, And so they may decide to be a little bit more risky because there is not this chance of losing 10 points. And that's just one specific scenario. One thing I did forget is that Any error made starting at question 17 is negative 10 points. So another kind of principle is question 17, starting there, things are different. So bonuses are only 10 points, not 20. And any error is negative 10 points starting at question 20. But, and remember, for an individual, all that matters is number correct and number incorrect. So an error on question 1 and an error on question 17 even though that error on question one is no negative points for the team and the error on question 17 is negative 10 for the team, that doesn't matter for the individual. All that we're looking at is number correct and number incorrect. And so if they only made one error in the quiz, the individual, their score does not lose any points for that error, even if it happened to be on question 17 when it caused the team to lose 10 points. All right, so here are some wrinkles. Um, I'm actually questioning myself on this first one. A, th- a three-team versus a two-team 20 question quiz are any scoring things different for a two team 20 question quiz griffin
0: no, it's just it, not from a scoring perspective. It's just that in basically, if one team errs, the the next question becomes a bonus. So, it can get a little bit confusing when you're talking about like when you're in sixteen, uh, like on sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and so forth in question numbers, because essentially you'll call question sixteen a, which will be a bonus. Um, which can happen, right? Sixteen a can be a bonus in a in a regular, uh, you know, three person team, because if, if a team errors on 15, it goes to 16 and 15 was the original error, right? The like, let's say 14 was correct. 15 was an error. 16, uh, well, no, I guess it would be 14. So 14 is the error, first error. So 13
1: is correct. No, nope, 14. You're, you're correct. 14 is correct. Fifteen is the error.
0: Fifteen is the error. Sixteen—that's right. Because sixteen is an error, and then sixteen A becomes the bonus, right? So it can happen in a three-team quiz, but in a two-team quiz, that happens all the like like that's normal, <laughs> right? Like any any error from either team results in a bonus to the other team. But conceptually, it's a, it's
1: the same, right? And I think one thing our minds like to trick us on is you know questions can become A or B starting at sixteen. So it's like, oh, 16B, B for bonus. And it's not B for bonus. It's just we're starting at the beginning of the alphabet. We go with A, and then the next one is B, and that's all that we need for the purposes of quizzing. But the B doesn't mean bonus. And so that's why 16A can be a bonus if the scenario is right. And then in two-team quiz, it'll always be the A questions that are a bonus. So another another way to think of a bonus is it's when um, only one team is um, eligible or able to answer. Right. I'm choosing my words carefully because I don't know how much I want to get into about that at the moment.
0: <laughs> it's it is a little on the confusing side because it turns out that nearly all bonus questions are B questions. It just it's sort of you know by the nature of things like like it doesn't have to line up that way, but it turns out that there is a very very high correlation between you know a 16B, 17B, 18B, and a bonus question. It's just that those things aren't at all connected.
1: Right, because one of the rules of quizzing, not and it's not really a rule, it's just how things have to work out, is that all three teams have to be jumping on questions 17, 18, 19, and 20. And because of that, if all three teams are jumping on those, then if we are at a 17A, 18A, 19A, 20A, then we know that there's only two teams. And then if we're on a B, we know that there's only one team. Um, and so 16 is kind of the weird one, where 16 is where we start the A, B process, but 17 is where the scoring really starts to change. Um, I can't remember if I know, I don't think I know why the scoring changes on 17, 17, 18, because that's the last fifth of the quiz, whereas we go to A's and B's starting at 16, which is the last fourth of the quiz. Right. I
0: I think it was because of error points starting on 17 that we basically wanted to have everyone... Uh, jumping on call it natural questions 17 18 19 and 20 for the last fifth and to make that happen you have to have 16 a and b to get everybody basically lined up lined up i don't know set up such that 17
1: natural 17 is all three teams right so that's three team versus two team there's very very few differences but in that two team quiz when one team airs it goes to a bonus because that's the only team left Um, Now, there's also 20-question quizzes versus 15-question quizzes. I don't think a three-team 15-question quiz is supposed to be legal. Um, So I don't think that ever occurs. But a two-team 15-question quiz has all kinds of different rules. Like, I guess one thing I didn't get into is for an individual, four questions is a quiz out and three questions is an air out. And when they hit those numbers, they are done jumping for the quiz. But here's another wrinkle. If an individual quizzes out, they are eligible for bonus questions. If they air out, they're not because they have to leave the stage and they cannot come back. Um, so in this 15-question two-team quiz, there are lots of changes. Now, because it's a two-team quiz, an error by one team goes right to a bonus, just like a 20-question two-team quiz. But I believe quiz outs are three correct questions and error outs remain at three incorrect questions or errors. And in a 15-question quiz, we also change where we start um, A's and B's. And Well, actually, no, not A's and B's. We change where we start A's. No, actually, everything.
0: Everything. So a a really simple way of dealing with a a 15-question quiz, if you're a scorekeeper, is start scoring on question six as if it was question one,
1: and everything works out just fine. That's a great trick, um, because everything is really just shifted five questions. Um, everything else stays the same. Yeah.
0: Now, I mean, you can start labeling, like like you can start using question number six on your score sheet and everything will be fine, but you can't call it question six because it is it is labeled question one. So you have to constantly, you know, scratch out six, put a, put a one, scratch out seven, put a two, that kind of thing. But if you do it that way, then like, yeah, when you get to... Uh, you know, the, the air points and overtime and all that kind of stuff, it, it basically works out exactly the way it's supposed to. Um, the only exception being, of course, like what you're talking about with the three, um, three quick question question quiz out, you know, that kind of stuff, which I actually don't remember if that's actually a thing. Um, I don't actually know if it is a thing. I can't remember.
1: Um, let's see here. Two team, 15 question tiebreaker quiz. A quiz out is three correct questions. Okay, cool.
0: Yeah, obviously we don't do them. We, we don't do uh, you know uh, a two team fifteen question quizzes all that often because uh, they are so different and the dynamic is so different that they they even though we're cutting things down to fifteen, it it's so different it it it's hard to equate that quiz with anything else going on uh, with any of the normal
1: sort of three team twenty question quizzes. Right, it's super super rare. Um, Over time is it doesn't count for anything individual um and it basically doesn't count for anything team you know what let's get into that right now so for teams there's a notion of raw points which is the scores that we are familiar with where we total up all of their 20 points and 10 point bonuses and negative 10 points and they get a score that's maybe 140 um but there is something called team points which basically takes those raw points and it gives teams an adjustment based on if they finished first, second, or third in the quiz. Um, now, if you remember Griffin saying we should get rid of zeros, this yes. is actually an interesting place because while we use zeros here for raw points, we don't for team points, and there's really no reason why we do that, right? Right. Um, For example, that team that scored 140, let's say they got first, I will just tell you before explaining it that they get 14 team points. But there's really no reason we couldn't have just said they get 140 team points, right? That's true. Um, So for some reason, maybe we just thought that adding numbers like 140 too many times over a meet might get large and unwieldy. Um, I really don't know. But um, the real simple way to calculate team points is... You divide by 10. So in this case, 140 divided by 10 is 14, which is, it is nice in this scenario because we have these zeros, but we can, this is really small, small potatoes. If they got first, no further adjustments are necessary. If they got second, you subtract one point. And if they got third, you subtract two points. So if a team scores 140 and gets first, they get 14. But if they scored 140 and got second, they get 13. And if they scored 140 and got third, they get 12 um, and the rule book talks about it really confusing. Um, it says first is ten points plus one point for every ten over a hundred, um, and has similarly confusing language for second and third. And in my experience, that has caused people to kind of recoil, and then they never really learn how team points are calculated because it's it's phrased intimidatingly. So remember that principle: is you just divide by ten, and then if they're first, you do nothing. If they're second, you subtract one. And if they're third, you subtract two. And there are only two scenarios that are coming to my mind where this is different. Um, The first one is that there are a minimum number of points a team can get if they're first, second, and third. And those points are 10, 5, and 1. So if you're first, you cannot get fewer than 10 team points. So that means let's say a team scores 80 raw points and gets first. Well, if you do my calculation, you divide by 10 and you get eight and then you don't do anything else to it. So we have eight. But there's this other rule, which is the team that wins the quiz cannot get fewer than 10. So in this scenario, they get 10. They get kind of defaulted up. And then the same thing happens for second. They cannot get less than five. And for third, you cannot get less than one. So we have seen teams score, say, negative 40 and get third place. And they don't get negative six points for that. They get one point for coming in third So that's the one other caveat. That's one caveat. And then the second caveat is a lot of districts, including PNW, allow ties, uh, team ties in preliminary rounds. So in this scenario, let's say two teams tie for first at 140. They both are treated as if they got first because they both did. (laughs) Um, So if they both tie for 140, they both get 14 points. And then the uh, the other remaining team obviously got third. Um, and they will just be treated how you would score a third-place team. So that is team points. Oh, and that leads me into what I wanted to talk about is overtime. So let's say we are not doing ties among teams, but we are breaking those ties using overtime. Now, yeah, so let's say we're we're breaking ties using overtime. Those teams end regulation, so the, the 20 questions tied at 140, and they enter overtime. You can kind of think of those 140 scores as locked in time, because that will be the basis for calculating team points. And the only thing Overtime is doing is determining which team is first and which team is second. That's all it's doing. So let's say one team does amazing in the three-question Overtime, gets all of them right, and they were, the question 21 was a third-person bonus, question 22 was a fourth quizzer bonus, and question 23 was a fifth quiz or bonus so they get 30 for each and they end the quiz at doing some math 230 well they obviously win the quiz but they don't get to use that 230 to calculate 13 points it is locked at the end of question 20 which is that 140 that they had and so they will end this quiz with 14 because they won the quiz the team that lost in overtime is second so they will take 140 divide by 10, subtract 1, and they will have 13. And this also kind of makes sense, right? Like, let's say overtime went over and over and over again, and we're on question 32 or something ridiculous. Well, each team might have a giant score, over 200 by this time. Um, And we don't want this kind of random happenstance to have a factor in the total team scores for everyone across a meet, where these teams kind of, just because of luck, got to have a ton more questions asked to them. So you're... Your score is kind of locked at the end of question 20. And at that point, we're just determining placement. And it's very similar with individuals. Whatever you do in overtime does not count for your individual score. Uh, individual scores are sometimes referred to as individual averages. And that's because generally people talk about them in terms of an average. Um, so over a two-quiz um Over two quizzes, we total it up for an individual and then divide by two to get their average. We don't talk about like how many in total they had. And this is probably because teams don't have the same number of quizzes all the time, and it's just easier. But you may hear some people talk about quizzer average synonymously with quizzer score, and that's correct. Those are synonymous. Anything anything so far that I've messed up? No, I don't think so. All right, so now a few more wrinkles. Um, There are a few additional ways that people can lose points. And for these, I believe they apply to both the individual and the team. Um, One of them is overruled challenges. So captains and co-captains can challenge, and they can be overruled. And I believe starting with the second overruled challenge in a quiz, um, you lose 10 points. So if a captain challenges and is overruled, and the co-captain challenges and is overruled, that's not negative 10 for the co-captain, right? Overruled challenges is just negative for the team.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no such thing as an individual. Uh, Yeah. I mean, a captain might calculate how many challenges they succeed at or overrule or get overruled at for their own tracking purposes, or a coach may do that for whatever reason, but a challenge is uh, initiated by a captain or a co-captain, but it is on behalf of a team. And so, yeah, like an overruled, you know, negative 10 is always based for it's, it's always based on
1: the team score, never on the individual. And then um, fouls. So an individual can commit a foul, right? Like if you start to answer before being recognized by the quizmaster, master. Um, and if an individual commits, I think it is the third foul by an individual, they get negative 10 points that applies to both the team and to themselves. Um, so negative points on fouls do apply to the individual, can reduce the individual's score. There's also a kind of I don't even I can't remember if this is super clear in the rule book, but um, there's a notion of a team foul which I am pre- which may have had an origin that I am unaware of, but as currently stated in the rule book, there is no no thing that a quizmaster can there's no foul that a quizmaster can award to a team. Quizmasters can only award fouls to individuals. Um, there's nothing saying that you can't award a foul to every individual on the team, but, um, they are individual fouls. There is also a notion of a team foul, which is kind of just talking about a team error. It is just the, the sum or the total of the individual fouls or the individual errors. Um, and I believe there is negative points there. So again, it's just kind of like errors. Um, if quizzers one, two, and three make commit fouls for a team, that third one is, Is it the third one? I'm just completely second-guessing myself now. Foul. Yeah, it's the third. Negative 10 if it's a third foul. Um, So if it's on Quizzers 1, 2, and 3, that third one, that third foul in Quizzers 3 is negative 10 points for the team, but it's only the first one for this individual. They don't get negative 10 points um, for their individual score. That only happens if they commit three themselves. It's very similar to how errors work.
0: Yeah. A little bit of history on the team foul thing. It, it, this is a relic from a long time ago. And by a long time, I mean like the nineties, uh, basically the team foul thing or the concept of a team foul existed in the nineties, but, but it was essentially used if a team was egregiously unsportsmanlike, uh, it to some degree. So it wasn't just say an individual doing something, but let's say an entire team, or at least, you know, More than one person on a team, say, taunting another team, really bad sportsmanship, uh, being disrespectful, you know, something fairly egregious. uh, And then that's where the sort of the team foul sort of concept came into play. Uh, I don't recall and I could have just blocked it out of my memory, but I don't recall ever witnessing a team foul ever being applied to anybody, but I, I mean, I do remember reading about it in the rule book way, way, way back in the dark ages and so forth. I think we ultimately just did away with it because it was basically, it was just never used. And the idea being that, well, you know, if there was ever such an egregious moment, just give everybody an individual foul and then have a conversation with the coach.
1: Right. Um, and so there's actually an interesting story around this is back at the 2012 internationals, um, the PNW team committed enough fouls, total fouls in a quiz to trigger the negative 10 points. Um, and it was awarded by the quiz master. And I did not bat an eye. But then someone in the audience who happened to be part of the original rulebook construction was like, This was only, the negative 10 points was only intended to be for accumulation of team fouls, not an accumulation of individual fouls. Oh, interesting. And and while I was happy to not have the negative 10 points, it was ultimately decided that like, well, it doesn't really matter what we originally like was the intent of this. This is how all of us expect it to be applied, you know, as an accumulation of individual fouls. And so we did get the negative 10 points and we moved on. Yeah. Um but you know it can it's an interesting story of how the original intent of anyone writing a rule doesn't mean that that's always how it's going to be interpreted um which puts a big onus on the people writing rules to think about how they're crafting wording and do we think that there's a way that this could be misinterpreted not you know two days or 3 months down the line like 10 years down the line or even longer Right. Exactly. And I think I think,
0: you know, I remember you telling me that story before um, about the 2012 IBQ. And it's like that totally makes sense to me because it's like we can't we cannot possibly make rulings based on the intent of somebody who wrote the rule uh, because that person may or may not exist. And even if they, they exist as in, you know, still be part of quizzing, although I guess ultimately exist may also play a factor, but the, the idea is we can't be making, uh, rulings based on intent because the, the intent is not, does not exist universally, objectively everywhere. Only the text of the rule book exists objectively everywhere for everybody. And therefore, uh, we have to evaluate a best interpretation of the text
1: of the rules. Yep. Now, remember how I said that as the result of an error, Um, a team cannot lose more than 10 points on a specific, on a single question. Now, I was very careful. That's due to an error. So if on a question we have an error and we have a foul and we have an overruled challenge, you could have multiple reasons for a team to lose 10 points on a single question. Um, But it can only be due to, well, for errors, you can only have negative 10 theoretically i guess you could have a bunch of fouls on a single question that then have lots of negative 10 points attached to them um right yeah like theoretically if, yeah like if you award all five quizzers on a team an error that could be negative 30 I, I, which I think would, which would every... be very
0: difficult to do that but i mean i suppose it would be plausible like if you have if you have say the quizzer who's a sub mouthing the answer to somebody who is or communicating with to somebody who's on the platform i
1: guess you could foul both of them yeah it would be a weird scenario but yeah. um i kind of have fun bringing up these corner cases but it's if you are trying to learn scorekeeping this is not something you need to worry about because if these corner cases hit Um, or occur, and you don't know how to handle them, it is totally fine to not know and to ask someone else. Um, I would do your best to know how to handle the very normal scenarios of correct questions, incorrect questions, quiz outs without error, when do error points start, it's question 17. Um, You know, those are very normal things. But like two team 15 question quizzes or accumulation of fouls, um, I really don't think you need to worry yourself with that. As, as a scorekeeper. Right.
0: Well, I mean, I just, I mean, you could be at internationals and if it ends up that there's going to be a two-team, 15-question quiz, I guarantee you everyone involved in that is in, in, in every capacity, whether coach, answer judge, quiz master, scorekeeper, they're a meet director, they're all looking at the rules, again, to refresh their memory because nobody remembers.
1: Absolutely. So that is just about everything scoring so to do with points so we talked about individual we talked about team we talked about overtime we talked about the conversion of raw points to team points um challenges fouls different formats of a quiz like number three teams versus two teams i just thought of one wrinkle that i would like to mention and that is you do sometimes see quiz teams with only two quizzers and it is not It is possible for both of those quizzers to either air out or quiz out. And in that scenario, let's say they're part of a three-team quiz, it is not like once that team has no more quizzers that can jump, it's not like that quiz gets converted into a two-team quiz. The quiz is still a three-team quiz, it's just that one of the teams now has no members eligible to jump. And so the next question is treated like it's for three teams. Um, and if one of the teams errors, it leaves only one team who has any quizzers left to jump, but it's not a bonus for them. It is a toss-up question for them and the other team that has no quizzers left to jump, Um, because that's really the only way that you can treat it. We can't, we're not going to change the format of a quiz because of either the number of quizzers that are on a team, or because of um, what happens to those quizzers over the course of the quiz. Another kind of parallel I would draw is for districts or meets where we are doing an assigned seat bonus question, if that team doesn't have four quizzers on the stage, it's a bonus for an empty chair and then nothing happens and we move on. We don't make um, any changes because the chair is empty. And it's just the same if a team has quizzers that have all quizzed out, aired out, fouled out, or just aren't present. um, The quiz format does not change because of it. And I feel pretty strongly that a a quizmaster should not be bringing anything about that to the attention of people. So if you're if one team errs and now it is a toss-up for a team with quizzers who are eligible to jump and a team with quizzers who are not eligible to jump, it is on the team with quizzers eligible to jump to realize that they really don't have any competition and they should wait for the whole question. But it, the quizmaster should not be helping them realize that.
0: In general, I agree, but do you think the same holds
1: true at, say, consolation brackets? I think a lot of things can be relaxed in consolation brackets. And another thing that I would do is, if I was running a two-team, 15-question quiz, before the quiz started, I may say a few things about the format of it. Like, just to remind everyone, an error-by-one team goes to a bonus for the other team. But I would say it, like, when that scenario is not currently happening... (laughs) right 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 sure um and so i think that that's totally fine or if we finish a quiz and there's a tie so we have to do overtime um i will say you know I'll, i will want to be very clear to the, to both teams what's happening you know i'll say for the third team you can step off the stage for the two remaining teams we will take a 60 second break and then we will resume with overtime in you know three question groupings um because I, th- I think it's totally fair in a very weird format like that to state the format um, and some of the implications before the quiz starts. But once we're into a quiz, I am definitely not going to help anybody out with, you know, it's just like if we're down in question 20 and a team is down by 30 points, I'm not going to tell them which of their quizzers could get a third, fourth or fifth person bonus. So similarly, if it's a toss-up question, but the other team literally has no one that can jump. I'm also not going to tell you that. <laughs> That's on you to figure out. Right. Also in play for the scorekeeper are question type minimums and maximums. So for all of the question types, there is a minimum number that, can, that have to be asked in a quiz, and then there's a maximum number that can be asked. And so it's on the scorekeeper to track those. If you have a paper score sheet or are looking at the paper score sheet, just about all of them have the types near the bottom with um, usually numbers for how many are the minimum and how many are the maximum. And so you can just strike through or um, put a slash through the number when it's asked. So if question one's an interrogative, you just put a slash through the number one in that interrogative box. Two little wrinkles on this. Um, those minimums have to be have to be met in the, um, I guess, normal, not normal, I don't want to reuse that word. How did, what do we call in the rule book? Natural. Well, I I keep
0: referring to them as natural, but I don't know that that's the, well, let's go with natural and I'm going to look up, look up what it is in the new rule book.
1: So it's the natural questions, which is one through 20, not including A's and B's. And you might say, well, Hey, that doesn't mean that all three teams can jump on all of these. And that's true, right? Question four can be a, a toss up and five can be a bonus. Um, but we are just making whatever effort we can to have all teams p- present on the question the questions that meet those minimums um and so the simplest thing to do is questions 1 through 20 not including A's and B's and then the maximums cannot be exceeded once you include A's and B's so let's let's look at an example so finish the phrase which which covers finish the verse finish this finish this in the next um finish these two verses which actually our score sheet doesn't have ftn on it griffin which is an oversight um yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but there needs to be a minimum of three and a maximum of four so that means one those that minimum of three for finish the phrase have to be in questions one through twenty and then um can We cannot have more than four when you include the A's and B's. And for the maximums, it could be that all four are asked in non-A and B questions. It's just that um, the minimums have to be met in those. And because of the number of the minimums, let's see here. For this epistle year, it is four, seven, ten... 19 questions are among the minimums. So that means that in a quiz, you know before the quiz starts what 19 of the 20 question types are going to be for those non-A and B questions um, because they have to be. It's, um, and so you could get any of the types for that 20th, but you know 19 out of a 20 will be the same. One little thing is you don't know when they'll occur. The first three questions might be, finish the verse questions, might be 18, 19, 20. You don't know. And that's part of the fun of quizzing. Um but you do know that there will be three of them. I
0: looked up in the rule book uh, what we were talking about with what we've been calling natural numbered questions. And in the new rule book, we did come up with a term, uh, it was sort of two terms. Uh, we called it numeric questions or purely numeric questions. And so it does get a little bit confusing because we have this concept of a question number. Uh, but when somebody says a question number, they are referring to, at least in terms of the rulebook verbiage, they're referring to the complete title of a question number. So this could be like 17A, as an example, is a question number. So when we say question number 17A, that is the full number. And so a question number can be comprised of purely a numeric or an alphanumeric and an alphanumeric is, you know, like that example 17a versus 17 is purely a
1: numeric number question. Makes sense? Um, <clears throat> so that's question type minimums and maximums. For overtime, I believe the rule is the initial questions, so 21, 22, and 23, not including those those As, um, have to be of different types. But once we're into overtime, we mathematically are going to exceed the question type maximums. So those are just like, we're done. Um, We just want to make sure that in overtime all three of them aren't like the same type, which would be, you know, even if randomly occurring, would significantly probably benefit one team over the other. And so there's a rule just saying like, they're going to be different. Um, Just kind of provide a varied test to everybody. Right. Numerics only. Right. Um, And there's no rules around the... um, the entire question, well, like the A's. And then the last two things that I can think of that a scorekeeper really has to worry about are timeouts and substitutions. So for timeouts, each team gets two 60-second timeouts, but a team can only take one of them after question 17. And this is just because we don't want six timeouts happening after question 17. And so technically, a scorekeeper needs to keep track of this so that if a team tries to take their second timeout After question 17, um, they're not allowed to do so. There's no penalty for requesting it, but they're not allowed to do so. Any um, longtime sports fans might remember Chris Webber and Michigan in a very important basketball game when he tried to to call. He did call for a timeout, but the team didn't have one. And in basketball, if you signal for a timeout but don't have one, there is a penalty involved. Um, I don't think we need to do that in quizzing, but it is kind of funny to look at how other sports and competitions handle very similar situations. I think the rules around timeouts could be simplified. I definitely don't want six timeouts after question 17. I think one timeout a team is plenty, especially because any timeout another team takes, you also get to take the timeout, you just don't get to dictate when it happens. Um, but one, a quiz seems like plenty.
0: Yeah, agreed. I think a lot of the verbiage in the new rule book around timeouts is really to sort of correct, to explicitly correct misunderstandings uh, that are commonly held about timeouts. So there is a common misconception that you can't call a timeout before a bonus question or you can't call a timeout uh say right before a toss up or something like that like you have to wait till a uh, a numeric question before you can call a timeout and that's just not true uh you can you can call a timeout pretty much anytime you want um now you cannot call a timeout after a uh, the type of question has been called um because that i would i think that would be considered a foul but you can call a timeout just about any other time
1: yep so um i believe we do allow substitutions prior to a bonus so theoretically a team right um i don't see anything in here preventing it i believe you are
0: correct that may be that may be a rule book bug that we want to fix because i could totally see a situation if you've got an aside in a signed seat bonus you could actually sub in somebody right before the bonus It, it theoretically is possible
1: So I I do recall discussing this. And so the discussion was, sure, after an error on a toss-up, when now, if you are the team receiving an assigned seat bonus, you know which seat is going to get it. But if you are making a substitution, the maximum number of subs that you can have sitting out a quiz is one, right? You're not going to have three quizzers on the stage and two sitting out. So you only have one sub who's not in the quiz. And so your question your only strategic decision is, do I want this quizzer who is out of the quiz in the quiz for the the quizzer who is sitting in the seat that will receive the bonus? Um, now, theoretically, maybe you know that your sub is way stronger and you want to make that, that change. Um, but you don't know the question type yet. Um, otherwise, a timeout would not have been allowed and you cannot make a sub without a timeout. And so I think we just deemed that what can be gained is so small that we didn't want to add yet another rule around substitutions. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's fair. And so, like, I can... If people really think that, oh, you shouldn't have substitutions prior to a bonus question... I think that would be fair. I don't think it's terribly necessary. Um, it would be very different if you had like six subs and you could say like, oh, I definitely want this quizzer in the quiz right now. Um, or if bonus questions were eligible for third, fourth, fifth or bonuses or like all this other stuff. But there's just not very much that be gamed by a team. Um, and really mainly because you don't know the question type yet. Now, it could be a scenario where it is question 20. And because of the types that have been asked, you def you do know which type it is um, but if you, if that is the scenario, you do know the type that it is, and you also know that your sub is a specialist in that type, then you know what? You just kind of won the lottery on this one. <laughs> um, and I don't think that that's necessarily a situation we need to rule book out of existence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talked about timeouts only, only one after question 17, um, yeah and some of the language in the rule book, as Griffin said, is just to clarify things. generally, we don't do timeouts um prior to bonus questions, but that doesn't mean they're not allowed um oftentimes a coach will call for a timeout not realizing that a bonus is upcoming, and oftentimes it might be a bonus for another team and as a quiz master, especially in in the in our district i would I will gently ask like is it okay if we do the bonus question first and 99 times out of 100, the coach is like, oh, I didn't even realize that it was a bonus. Yes, please, let's do the bonus first. Um, I probably would not make that request as a quiz master if I were quiz mastering internationals um, and just let things happen <laughs> as they're requested. Um, but that is a very small thing. And then the last thing is substitutions. So there is a rule that a quizzer, upon leaving a quiz um, or being subbed out, has to remain out for three questions. And that is on the scorekeeper to track. I also think that this is... Um, not something very useful. A team already has to only can sub during timeouts um, and I don't really know why you would be subbing quizzers back and forth like at every opportunity that you get. So I, I don't really care if a team subs a quizzer out and then subs them in one question later. I don't think that that would become a common occurrence or something that can be gamed and if you've heard me talk about the rulebook and rules that i like or rules that i don't like that is kind of a common thing that i come back to is like is there a way to manipulate this by a team and if we got rid of this substitution sitting out three questions i don't know if there's a big way that it can be manipulated a few other rules around substitutions so remember i said that a, a quizzer who has quizzed out can't get any more questions correct um but they can jump on a bonus. That is true. So sometimes a team will have a quiz or quiz out and stay in the quiz, and they will get bonuses. But if they leave the quiz after quizzing out, the rulebook says that they cannot return. I think that that's unnecessary, but it is a current rule. So if you're a scorekeeper and a quiz or quizzes out and they leave the quiz, they cannot come back. And then I think just about the only thing that I can last thing I can think of around substitutions is, remember when I told you that substitutions have to happen during a timeout? Well, there's a caveat to that, and that is if a team has a quizzer that quizzes out or that errors out, they can be replaced immediately. Um, as a quiz master, I, I, I'm totally fine with this like as a rule, but as a quiz master, I didn't like it because sometimes the team was not super on top of sending their sub in, and I'm just left here to wait for it. <laughs> um, and if a team dawdled too much, I might just move on, um, but if teams are on top of it and I. They have a quizzer that quizzes out. They can immediately send in a quizzer. They do not have to use a timeout.
0: All right, cool. Well, do we want to uh, hit uh, maybe our first of the two deep thoughts and uh, kind of see where that goes? Yeah. Do you want to lead it off? Yeah, so um, we have a couple of couple three different deep thoughts we may want to get into, and the first one, the first deep thoughts uh, by Scott and Griffin as it pertains to quizzing is as thus: um, there may be, and of course here's the deep thinking that we're going to have to get into. There may be a downside of having readily available reference material uh, when we're writing questions. Uh, there may also be a downside of having readily available reference material uh for coaching uh in the sense of like what the coaching is, uh, coaches do uh with their teams either prior to a quiz or during a quiz right and so let's let's talk about question writing in particular so it used to be back in the dark ages before you know electricity when we would you know tear out some tree bark and use some you know uh sap to write on the bark and that's how we wrote our questions, um, by candlelight, uh, we didn't have, you know, fancy reference material. We didn't have the ability to easily search and, and check for, you know, two and three word key phrases and, and look for, you know, other sorts of uh, nature of the overall reference, reference material very quickly. And so in that sense, or in that sort of universe of the dark ages, quite literally dark, because we were writing by candlelight, The questions that we would create tended to be a little bit longer because we weren't exactly sure, like when something became key, uh, unless there was, say, a unique word and we had an index of unique words from the material but but even then like sometimes we didn't have that because like i said candlelight right so our questions tended to be a little bit longer tended to be a little bit slower they tended to be, le- be less clever of question and and what i mean by that is you know i think we've talked about this actually i'm pretty sure we have talked about this in the past where uh, questions I can I can I can call them too clever by half where they're technically legally valid, but they're sort of making contortions around either CVR rules or chapter reference rules or something like that. and they technically become correct because there's a, a two word key phrase or a single keyword, but it, uh, to the chapter or something along those lines. And and just because something falls into that category of what I just described doesn't necessarily make it clever. It's usually a question that isn't a particularly good question that turns out to be valid because of some sort of clever Uh, a a deeper awareness of, of the, the, the depth of the material uh, as, as it relates, you know, any one particular section of the material as it relates to everything else within the material. So that's sort of the nature of questions back then. So there were some downsides about writing questions by candlelight. Like one of the big downsides is that very frequently there would, there were invalid questions that were, that were written. So like you would go to quiz meets, you would go to internationals and there were questions that would pop up that were flat out you know invalid and i and i mean certainly that still exists today but it's rare it's very rare Uh, To actually encounter a legitimately invalid question. Not not like, you know, maybe at the beginning of a year with a brand new set that hasn't been, you know, uh, battle tested through practices or through, you know, competition or something like that at Quiz Meets or something like that. Like, okay, maybe you encounter uh, an invalid question here and there. But toward the end of a season when the set becomes battle tested, You're, you basically are, are the, 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 I, the probability of encountering a genuinely invalid question is very small now, but back in the day, it was actually quite common. Uh, You would, you would typically get an invalid question, maybe once a quiz even, I mean, it was, it was very common. So in regards to having reference material for question writers, I think Net-wise, it is certainly better now than it used to be, in the sense that our sets are are genuinely... uh, they have less opportunity of invalid questions. But I think it can go to question writers' heads in the sense that we can write and be, we can write really iffy questionable questions in terms of goodness of question knowing that they are at least technically valid and thus our sets can while being technically valid actually test material memorization not as effectively so anyway that's the theory of this first deep thought so scott what are your
1: what are your thoughts about the deep thought um i completely agree and when you say um not test the material as effectively um, i think- I think that that might not necessarily be the biggest downside but i I think you might get well this might be what you're part of what you're getting at is the questions might be a lot more awkward or unnatural um because we are making decisions on where to start a question where to end a question and how long a question is specifically around how fast or slow it is unique or at least qualities of uniqueness rather than just looking at the material and saying like this sounds like a great question to write with the way that it's read the way that it flows the total of the question and the answer having a complete thought Um, those were the things that were mainly evaluated when writing a question, um, before reference material where it's now you can make all of these other determinations like, Ooh, this answer has five unique words or Ooh, this question isn't unique until the fifth word, um, which really aren't important at all. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, we just want the entire material to be tested by question types that really fit it. Um, and that questions make sense to quizzers and flow, um, Yeah, I'm not really sure what else to say about it. I just, I just when I think about when I'm writing questions, I can see how I'm influenced by the reference material when I'm looking at it. And if I didn't have it and just wrote questions, I think they would be better questions. And it's, it's v- in a very small way, it's how I like to write questions, where I will go through and just write all the multiple answers that I can, but then I will go through and say, oh, this one's a multiple answer, but this one actually is a chapter reference multiple answer, and this one's a chapter verse reference multiple answer. So I wasn't trying to write specifically one of those three types. I was just looking for multiple answers. Um, and to take that to a further extreme, you really should just be, write, be writing questions. Um, and then later someone comes through, maybe you, maybe someone else, probably better if it's someone else, and then looks at the question that you've written and then decides on what the the correct type is for that question.
0: What do you think would be the effects of, uh, you know, having this sort of deep reference material searchability and, and, and analyzability on coaching?
1: Um, effects of coaching. I'm not really sure. Um, I do think, no, I'm not really sure. Because coaches already can't protest for stuff, so it's not like, ooh, a coach just has a nice computer and is searching everything and then can play kind of a role. Um, yeah. They can't. They can't.
0: <laughs> so I don't think it directly influences coaching, but I think there is a a, a parallel world – parallel world? No, that's not right. There's a, a corollary to reference material being electronic and easily searchable – there is a corollary of that to question sets being easily copyable and reusable between coaches or from officials to coaches and so forth. So like in PNW, we have a PNW practice set that is a subset of our official set. And that uh, that subset, the practice set, we share with coaches, head coaches, and they can, if they desire to, they can elect to use that in their practices, um, which I think on balance is a good thing and a net positive thing because then quizzers are being exposed to questions during practices that they are then exposed to during the quiz meet. Now, they're not exactly the same question. I mean, they are the same questions in practice that they see in, um, at meets, but there are, there are much more, you know? So it's like, you can't, you can't just prepare purely by the question set, the practice question set, because there's so much more questions at the actual meet. But the ideas of, you know, in terms of style, in terms of pacing, in terms of how the questions are written, uh, all these sort of extra things that are that are you know not exactly described in the rule book, all of that is conduct is is part of these practice sets, so quizzers can prepare a little bit more effectively and 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 do well in the, uh, in the actual meets themselves. So in that way, I think there's a, there's a fairly significant bonus to that or a value to that for quizzers, right? They are less confused about, you know, maybe a a mental whiplash of, of question styles or something like that. Right. Um, however, I think there is a potential negative, uh, to the coaching, uh, process itself because back in the day, you know, and when I say back in the day, again, you know, Dark ages, candlelight—you know that kind of stuff. We walked to the quiz meet uphill both directions, in snow in July, uh, when you know we didn't have these sorts of technologies. Coaches would end up having to prepare their own questions prior to a practice, and so you know I I remember fondly driving to church uh, Sunday morning. Uh, you know, with my NIV open on in one hand, scribbling out questions with my left hand on a piece of paper as rapidly as I could, uh, because I had procrastinated, knowing full well that you know I would go to church, worship uh, at church, listen to sermon, and then after that would go to quiz practice. And at quiz practice, I needed to have questions written, uh, to actually lead the quiz practice. And so, you know, yeah, it was extra work on the coach. Um, and it was extra effort that the coaches had to put in, which makes the job of coaching harder. But the flip side of that is I never showed up to practice, not being familiar with the chapter, at least to some basic degree. Right. So like I would go to practice, I would run the practice and I would Maybe not necessarily have the chapter memorized, but I'd have a in fact very rarely actually have the chapter memorized if I was writing questions on it like the 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 morning of, but rather, I would be i don't know I would have a cognizant ability uh, i would i would understand the chapter to for some definition of understand right that would otherwise not be there so when somebody was jumping on a question, I could actually give them feedback about the broader scope of the chapter within context of that chapter and the preceding chapters that we had already covered. By not having that uh, that knowledge, it, it it makes the job of actually coaching as a coach, I think, a little bit more difficult. And so you can kind of see this, and actually not even kind of, I think you can really see this when you're looking at different teams' coaches at a district quiz meet, when you can look at a coach and say like, okay, that coach actually is memorizing the material along with their quizzers, they actually can they can say after a quiz or during a timeout, okay, here's where you were coding, here's how you can look at it uh, a different way. Um, you got confused because of chapter three versus chapter five where the question was from, that kind of thing, right? And sometimes as, as quiz masters, we provide a little bit of that information, but we don't have to, and oftentimes we don't. And so there is, um, it's certainly not required to have that knowledge to be a coach or to have, be an effective coach. But I think having that, that, that scriptural material awareness helps in some ways to make you a better coach. And so by having that set of questions, I think we potentially hobble uh, some coaches How's that?
1: Yes, and I also agree with this, but I think the advent of reference material um, and those sorts of e- electronic resources has enabled um, coaches and quiz masters to be basically just as effective, um, or at least has made lots of their jobs easier as far as not having to write questions as a coach um, or... You can easily search up what a quizzer was saying as a quiz master. So a lot of their requirements have been lessened, right? Or I think I'm phrasing it poorly. I think those jobs are easier, but that le- because it's easier, it leads to less effective at kind of the the top end or the high end, um, when ideally you would love coaches and quiz masters who completely know the material um, and... Before reference material and electronic resources, coaches and quizmasters were kind of just forced to know the material at a pretty decent degree, and that made them better. Um, But it also might have um, reduced the number of people willing to be coaches and quizmasters. There's not really a way to know that. Um, And so there there are some fairly large pros, but also some fairly large cons of the advent of things like the reference material. Right and you were you were well, definitely not you were not definitely not arguing that there were no cons um you, you were ju- or that there were no pros you were just stating what those cons were and that um it is a factor in creating less effective and able coaches and you didn't mention it but i will quiz masters as well
0: yeah i mean I, I don't want to go back to the dark ages let me be really let me be really clear about that i i think there there the pros of having this technology is vastly Stronger than the cons that that may or may not exist for everybody. Right. Um, I think the the fact that more quiz masters can be more objectively accurate in real time is substantially a good thing. Uh, I think the reducing the burden of time investment required of coaches is a good thing because it means more coaches can be involved um, and and we're we're not sort of force filtering for free time, you know, the coaches, that kind of stuff. So I think all of these things are a very good thing. and I think on balance, uh, you know a, a net positive across the board in every respect it's just more that like, there are some of these sort of unintended negative consequences that do exist that we just I think need to be aware of.
1: Yep. And when it comes to quizmasters, I am of the belief that the existence of re- reference material and electronic resources makes almost no difference to the effectiveness as a quizmaster. The example that I bring to mind to support my my belief is from 2012. Um, there was a first-time international quizzer named Aaron Haight, and he knew the material incredibly well and made most rulings without looking anything up um, and was very good at it and was never wrong. But that's the bar if you're going to quizmaster that way and not look things up. You can't get a single thing wrong because of it. Um, if he had gotten even one thing wrong he would then be worse than a quiz master who knows they don't know the material and looks everything up. And so that's that's what I use to support my belief, that it makes almost no difference to a quiz master whether they know the material or not, because 99% of them should just be looking it up every time anyway.
0: Yeah, true. And I mean, arguably, you know, a, a quiz master who knows the material at at a 90% goodness level, right, Uh, maybe that's actually worse than somebody who actually knows the material at a 40% goodness level because the 90% person may be overly confident in their memory, whereas the 40% person won't be. And so the 40% person will be looking things up all the time, whereas the 90% person may not look up something when they when they ought to. And so as a result, it, it, is, it is entirely possible, I would think, at least theoretically, that the 90% knowledgeable Quizmaster actually could be practically worse than a 40% knowledgeable person with it given
1: the you know the technology that we have exactly right and i think now granted if you know the material well you can make decisions and rulings a lot quicker but i think that speed difference has to be massive for it to be better than um decreased accuracy as a quizmaster, even an extremely small amount of decreased accuracy in your rulings yeah indeed
0: Alrighty. Well, on that bombshell, we should probably wrap things up. Uh, Of course, if you have any questions about anything that we have talked about, or if you disagree with anything, I mean, it's very unlikely you're going to disagree with anything about the scoring stuff, but if you disagree with anything we talked about, about deep thoughts, or if you have a quizzing deep thought of your own that you would like to share, we would very much like to hear from you. Please email us at IQ at CBQZ.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing, and you can chat with us in near real time on the bible quizzing slack channel inside quizzing and with that i will say thank you all for listening and thank
1: you scott thanks again everyone for listening to this podcast and thank you griffin